Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I never know what to say during this portion where I'm trying to say something before I launch into the talk. (laughs) Always uh, grasping for some uh, small talk to drop us in without it feeling abrupt. Imagine that someone who's really good at that just gave you a long, charming introduction, like at the beginning of a great podcast before they actually dive into the subject. Imagine that's happened. And then let's jump right in to tonight's talk. Uh, Tendencies from early life experiences can influence our behaviors at work. Um, This is not a talk on the vast societal influences that keep people trapped, the lack of access to good employment, uh, systemic racism and lack of opportunities. My specific field, I'm both a Buddhist pastor and work uh, in counseling, so Uh, you're going to get psychological insights into how repetition compulsion plays a significant role in our triggered behaviors in workplaces. So what is repetition compulsion? Well, repetition compulsion is the characteristic that after painful traumatic experiences in life, we unconsciously gravitate to emotionally similar people in situations making the event likely to reoccur. For example, uh, a young woman who grows up with a distant, unavailable father figure as she grows into um, an older uh, individual constantly dates emotionally avoidant partners who recreate essentially the same unsuccessful, unhappy uh, relational dynamics of childhood. This happens constantly in life where people return to individuals who are similar to early caregivers or early adult figures, or people return to situations that are very similar to previous traumatic experiences. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk, famous trauma psychologist, and he notes in quotes, war veterans may enlist after the war as mercenaries. Victims of incest may in adult life become prostitutes. Victims of childhood physical abuse in adult life might become chronic self-mutilators. Others identify with their aggressors and do to others what was done to them. Repetition compulsion, again, the tendency to reenact early traumas in our adult life with new people uh, and new situations that are eerily reminiscent of the early traumas has been long noted in uh, psychology. And I'll even talk about Freud's theories of why. So let's look at some examples of how repetition compulsion might be repeated in workplaces. So those who come from secure family systems and also school systems where their classrooms weren't too crowded and there was adequate attention and needs were met will very often feel empowered at work to speak up for themselves, to claim credit, to have good work-life balance, to have a healthy sense of when to uh, take the lead and when to be a collaborator and so forth. Individuals though, for example, who grew up with learning disabilities such as dyslexia or ADHD, who were treated poorly in their grade schools Uh, and were told repeatedly by teachers who were unaware of their learning disability that they weren't trying hard enough, might find themselves in workplaces constantly anxious about being seen as slacking off 
are not being industrious enough and might feel a need to compensate by working extra long hours and so forth. Children of parents who were rewarded for their achievement rather than effort and creativity will feel most comfortable in jobs where compensation depends on results like salespeople or working in the financial markets or something where you only get attention and rewards for perform for the results of your performance not for your effort and so forth very often people who were chronically shamed for calling attention to themselves in family systems or in crowded school systems will chronically at work not do anything that calls attention to themselves and will not even seek any kind of acknowledgement for their efforts. So why is it that we repeat or return to painful dynamics and unpleasant coping strategies in adult life if they were originally so traumatic and wounding in infancy and early life experiences? Well, one dominant theory is, could be called familiarity. Due to evolution, the right hemisphere and bottom-up circuits in the brain prefer the familiar and predictable settings that we've survived, even if those settings are unsatisfying. What this means is, due to evolution, which is all about survival, and that's what passes down genes, what attributes allow us to survive long enough to reproduce and pass down genes. Evolution and genetics don't reward happiness or things that make us fulfilled. They simply reward uh, circuits that keep us alive. And neural circuits that always return to the familiar are more likely to be genetically rewarded by evolution. So in the brain, the right hemisphere gravitates towards the familiar and the predictable. Another is that nervous systems that uh, have been trained to stay in heightened sympathetic hyperarousal states of fight flight in early life experiences, if they wind up in situations that are safe, that are not dramatic, people will experience emptiness and boredom because by now the brain has become accustomed to dramatic, to situations where one always has to stand, stay on guard, has to fight for any kind of appreciation. And so the early example I gave of the woman who grows up with an emotionally distant father and thus is constantly hypervigilant, not knowing when this father figure will be available or not, and thus gravitates towards avoidant males in her adult life because if she's with a partner who's actually secure and available and predictable and reliable and available and caring, she'll experience boredom because now her nervous system is completely attuned and uh, essentially comfortable with drama, not with predictability. Freud, as I mentioned, I, I talk a little bit about his theory, had uh, proposed what some people call mastering, which is that people reenact previous wounding experiences and traumas in the unconscious hope that this time we can win, that this time we can master the situation, that this will be the time where we can, that if we act nicer, if we perform better, if we stay more vigilant, if we only do it better, this time the dysregulated figure, the stand-in for one's mother or father or teachers or siblings, this time we will no longer be abandoned or shamed or have disappointing results. In essence, from Freud's perspective, repetition compulsion is an attempt to rewrite our childhood, to get right experiences that in the past created lasting feelings of unworthiness. So it's an attempt to win 
what we couldn't possibly win earlier in our life. Developmental wounds leave people in ongoing activations of the sympathetic nervous system, which is essentially a state of threat detection and excessive reliance on defensive behaviors. And what's ironic is that a lot of the defensive behaviors that allow children to survive in chronically neglected situations in childhood or in school systems actually at times can come in very handy in workplaces that are um, common in late stage capitalism. For example, um, in uh, family systems where parents are emotionally dysregulated, the child will practice avoidance coping, uh, not overtly stating their needs, only hinting at what they really need to feel safe and protected. So this child will grow into an adult that avoids confrontation with supervisors or employers and will only hint at their needs and hope that their needs will be met, which of course never will happen because they've been trained to do so. So for the, from the employer's perspective, the very maladaptive coping strategy that allowed this person to survive their childhood is really convenient for the employer. It keeps the employee very meek, non-confrontational, not stating their needs. Um, one classic outcome of uh, unrewarding family systems is undervaluating oneself undervaluing oneself or self-minimizing. Self and such people, when they go into job interviews, will never state their worth, will always go in like the employer is the one that is somehow giving them a gift by employing them, that they're, they're like a child going into a parent asking for an allowance or asking for something nice. But it, it creates a felt sense that I'm not worth anything, that I'm powerless, that I have to placate my employer. And really, any job interview or any encounter between uh, someone at a job who's higher up in a hierarchy than another person each person has something of value. Each person has something that the other requires. Somebody who is a worker in any capacity, blue collar, white collar, whatever, um, ha has skills, has uh, abilities, has competencies, or has some value that the employer needs. But if we've been chronically undervalued in childhood, we won't realize that. And we'll always go into interactions with this felt sense that I am essentially just lucky to be getting anything from the situation. Um, people might from family systems wind up with a need to compensate for, for early uh, shaming experiences by perfectionism or excessive attempts, excessive attempts to prove their value. Others will be defensive and rigid in the way they go about their and not collaborate well with others. And many people will fall into catastrophizing or threat detection, which again, is in no way inconvenient to employers because people who worry about getting it right, being perfect, are, are, are totally comfortable without in any way uh, seeking more creative, fulfilling tasks is very convenient for um, uh, certain employers. So <clears throat> one other issue to note is that unresolved emotional events from childhood still feel like they're active. And that's why traumas can create such dysregulated behavior. Someone who has been sexualized too early in life, traumatically so, will still 
feel that they are in situations where they have to perform as sexual objects to survive and those behaviors can still be activated and those inclinations can be triggered decades after the original trauma. So unresolved emotional events, which are events that we haven't felt all of the the emotions and processed all of the experiences still feel the emotional circuits of the mind like they're still happening today in the present that means that the same defenses are likely to be activated from childhood the feelings of insecurity the catastrophizing the not asking for help the inability to set boundaries and walk away from unpleasant situations, the inability to uh, disengage and so forth. Because in childhood, none of those capabilities were possible. And so if we live in brains that still on a unconscious or pre-conscious level believe that the traumas of the past could still or are still happening, we're far more likely to rely on early maladaptive coping strategies to survive. Lastly, before I uh, start moving towards the solution, it should be noted that it's common that we will compensate for lack of a secure base, a felt sense that there are people who care about us, people who see our innate value, people who are soothing, people who appreciate our developmental milestones, will feel this constant need to prove oneself as useful, lovable, needed. And that creates an unconscious emotional belief that if I don't do everything well, if I uh, fail in any task, if I am in any way seen as inadequate, then I'll wind up discarded alone and no one will take care of me. So this, the same lack of a secure base from childhood now in adult life can create uh, unconsciously, nobody thinks consciously this way, but unconsciously will act as if our lives will become catastrophic unless we perform really well. Uh, onwards to the uplifting, um, secure, healthy uh, work situations what are they like? What should we be looking for? What is a hallmark of what Abraham Maslow might call the characteristics of self-actualization? Well, the gold standard would be situations where feelings of self-worth, appreciation, and not being in competition with others would be fostered, where our judgment and our instinct would be trusted because individuation is a profoundly important uh, developmental characteristic um, in workplaces where employees constantly interrupt and um, uh, uh, try to micromanage how tasks are done, keep workers or people under them crippled in situations where they are once again returned to the overly monitored helicoptered child who can't uh, isn't allowed to have enough room to develop new skills and competencies um, so essentially what we need is autonomy to make decisions um, it's important to find situations where we can be spontaneous and natural. A hallmark of early developmental or environmental failures in infancy and childhood is the um, development of what Winnicott called a false self, a set of performative behaviors that will win some kind of uh, positive regard from the parent. So over time, that can narrow the behavioral window or the behavioral vocabulary from which we can act. 
But if we can find situations where a wider range of instincts can be supported, or at least where we can express different ideas, emotions, different uh, approaches, that can in many ways free us from the maladaptive strategies of earlier life. Work, of course, where there's freshness, uh, where new tasks uh, and new challenges are constantly being provided. In family systems that are secure, um, always encourage exploration and growth. In family systems that are dysfunctional, uh, trying new things um, is only allowed once uh, when when caregivers are in extremely good mood or when one controlling caregiver is not present and the child finally has the ability to, uh, with great temerity, go out and try new tools. Most in, another really important hallmark of a healthy work environment is a situation where workers or people who are uh you know uh, where we can sustain our focus and we are not constantly interrupted uh, that's very important because the more we're interrupted the more our nervous systems are likely to stay chronically locked in sympathetic heightened survival states and that means the ventral medial prefrontal cortex the uh, default mode uh, region of the brain might be engaged where we have repetitive thoughts and repetitive actions and we can't develop new approaches or think outside of the box so once again <coughs> excuse me um while for some of us, uh, I mean, for many of us, I should say, financial constraints or lack of opportunities are constraining and lead to um, unwholesome work situations. It's also important for us to recognize when we are either one in toxic workplaces and also when our own the way we approach workplaces or work situations or jobs or whatever in ways that keep us trapped in reenacting um, survival strategies that stem all the way back to early traumatic or painful experiences from childhood. So what are the tools um, that uh, we can use to break free of these um, reenactments of early uh, environmental failures. Well, one thing I must note is that cognitive tools, talk therapy, uh, rarely helps that much in this uh, when it comes to rewiring behaviors especially in stressful situations uh, most of the tools will be in some way or another uh, somatic so in that way because we're trying to undo behaviors and behaviors are far more um, responsive to how we feel than how we think once again people act and behave not in accordance with how they think but how they feel so um, a few tools one is that um, it's really exceedingly important to be able to stop or drop out of the routines and the processes that we have to employ in work so that there are significant periods of each day where we have transitioned to entirely different states of being. 
for example, most many of us will have jobs where we constantly have to be responsive to stimuli. We have to constantly reply to emails and messages. We have to constantly be available to respond to some figure or another. We have to constantly be online. We can't or we have to constantly pay attention to new stimuli and information as it arrives. And so in such situation, we would need to transition to periods of the day where we in no way have to be responsive and no way have to be um, in some way accountable, where we can disengage from all of the stimuli around us, where we don't check emails, don't check text messages, don't continually look for incoming uh, information. Um, sadly, uh, many of us also have work where we constantly have to be putting out fires, constantly have to be addressing and fixing and solving. And if we don't know how to discontinue or unfuse from that subpart of our of our mental psyche, then we'll return home and deal with the people we love or roommates or other people in our life or will in uh, from a perspective of they're more they're just more problems to be solved. So somebody who works in a job where they're classically dealing with budgets and or issues and constantly have to fix and solve they might come home to a partner after work or they probably are already at home given the pandemic but they'll then look at their partners who ask for attention and they'll view their partner's utterances as problems that need to be fixed and solved. And that will not only cause tension in the relationship, but then they won't be able to break out of this constant fix solve perspective that won't allow them to truly flourish at work either. So it's really important for us to insert a routine that essentially throughout the day disempowers uh, whatever coping or maladaptive coping strategies we rely on to do our jobs so that we can attain breaks and achieve different states of being, by which I mean different states of the nervous system and different emotional affects. Um, so what would that look like? Well, in the past, it used to be called commuting. <laughs> People had a natural end to their job and they would leave work and they would actually do things like go into a subway or a train or in a car and they'd drive somewhere. And during that period, they would then uh, use that time without aware awareness of it to transition from the chronic need to perform or fix or solve or be accountable and available to an entirely different state of being that would allow them to not stay locked in one, uh, one uh, affect, one behavioral state. And that ability to, for instance, go out take a lunch outside, walk around through a park, do something in the middle of the day to break up the routine to allow us to unfuse from whatever strategies we need to enact to, to perform well is the only way we can possibly develop the skill to become aware of when we are overly you know, in, locked in to a hypervigilant state of fight flight in our work. If there's no break, if we are constantly locked into these states of being, then we lose the ability to f get any kind of distance that will say, okay, I need to back off. I need to take a break. I need to unwind. I need to uh, try to put this on pause and do things another way.
past um, early maladaptive strategies that are activated by the sympathetic nervous system are deactivated if we can switch to the parasympathetic nervous system. And so there's some tools that can really help in situations where we experience chronic stress at work. The first is called titrating. Now titrating uh, is a term that goes back to uh, how we medicate people, but uh, in new uh, psychotherapeutic settings. Tritrading means to learn how to move slower, to focus attention on soothing, orienting uh, sensations, to slow breathing, to even bring our attention slower to new stimuli, to develop an open, relaxed posture of the body, to, in other words, uh, change the fundamental somatic state uh, in some way so that we are no longer locked in to the survival state. And titrating really helps because moving fast, talking fast, acting fast, always feeling the need to move from one thing to another without any pause, uh, keeps us trapped in sympathetic, uh, hypervigilant survival states. And when we're in there, it is impossible to become more collaborative, to look at problems from a different perspective, to have an even wider perspective of, is this issue really all that important that I'm dealing with? Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, essentially, uh, for me, one of the tools is to, in situations that are even slightly triggering, to learn how to disconnect from constantly looking at other people's eyes, which uh, activate the fusiform gyrus and spin uh, frontal lobe regions into state of survival because we're constantly glued in, and to be able to move around the room and look for safety cues. Another skill that's really vital is developing what I would call somatic confidence, um, a felt sense that we are safe, appreciated, that we don't need to constantly prove ourselves, that we won't be, you know, uh, that we um, don't feel this constant need to compensate or uh, this and also the 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 characteristics of imposter syndrome come in here. Uh, one for me tool that has always been really uh, very useful to impart is how useful visualizations can be. Visualizations are the permission to at times take a break close one's eyes and to visualize either a protective entity, what in the Dharma is called Devanusati, really protective people, people who care and appreciate us no matter what, you know, how we're feeling, no matter if we are successful or not. Someone, uh, figures who appreciate, care, um, and genuinely are available no matter you know how we how well we do at any task or anything or as uh, Daniel P Brown the famous like Harvard psychologist has noted um, visualize situations that exemplify our highest sense of self visualize people that we've helped in the past, visualize ways we'd like to help people in the future, visualizing anything that creates a somatic state 
of confidence. And so, and for many of us, that also might be things as simple as leaning forward and keeping oneself in a posture that is associated with confidence. Uh, many studies have shown how behaviors and capabilities are bottom up, that body states uh, uh, essentially can determine which regions of the brain are active and can put us into uh, skills and capabilities that we won't be able to if we are in a small, uh, chronically stressed or hunched over position. And very often when I find myself, I, I try to multiple times throughout the day when I'm responding to uh, uh, people reaching out to me in email or whatever, I, I'm constantly checking my body and keeping myself out of the hunched over, I've just got to get through this, or keeping myself out of the di small, disengaged, like exhausted mode, and just trying to keep this nice, balanced, confident place so that that body actually uh, really influences then how I go about uh, the tasks of my day. When it comes to making decisions, uh, far more influential in terms of our behavior, our sense of whether we can do it or not, our confidence is actually more about that tightness in your chest than all of the concerns up here. Someone who's got a really secure base from ongoing environmental support from childhood and all that will more likely have this feeling of, of this feeling of confidence in their body. And from that confidence in their body will come affects associated, emotions associated with confidence. But if instead we have that tight, contracted chest that's associated actually at times with feelings of abandonment or lack of support, then that somatic state will then activate feelings of or, or impulses associated with, if I can't figure this all out myself, it won't happen. So that's what we want to address is first bring our attention to that felt tightness, which is associated with previous times in our life we weren't supported whether by teachers or friends or, or caregivers or whatever. And we want to address that feeling and be able to either through visualization or breathing or talking with someone supportive, we want to change the feeling that's associated with the times we get overwhelmed. Lastly, um, it can be very useful to find the underlying emotional belief uh, the unconscious emotional belief that guides our behaviors. Um, there's an old Buddhist tool that uh, I actually heard first from one of the um, the uh, famous monks I was on uh, I was attending to on a retreat back about uh, I think 18 years ago, but he had this practice uh, that he called the and what will happen then practice. And it goes like this, um, you, if we're worked up, worried, uh, if something feels really important that we can't get done, if we're in a state of catastrophizing, keep asking ourselves, and what will happen then? So if we're in a situation where we feel uh, uh, we're going to get uh, some kind of uh, reprimand or that it's really important that we get something done, but we're, it's late and we're exhausted and we're not coming up with any new ideas or we just have to, uh, we just, nothing is getting done. We ask ourselves, okay, what will happen then if I don't get this done right now? And then the chronic f frightened, uh, circuits in the brain might, the inner language circuits might respond, well then uh, I'll never be respected or I'll be seen as incompetent. And then we ask, and what will happen then? 
and then the 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 inner the inner language centers might say well if i'm not respected people won't want to fire me or i'll never get an opportunity again and then you ask well and what will happen then and then eventually the response will be something like well i'll be fired i'll never work again and so forth and it's helpful because when we really see the extreme fears that lie beneath the normative behaviors at work, the perfectionism, the workaholism, the people pleasing, the constant need to prove ourselves, the imposter syndrome. If we really see that deep beneath it is this fear of abandonment, then in my experience, it's easier to then begin to see how these behaviors are merely an expression of a small frightened inner child and that's the time when we then remind ourselves through looking around the, our lives for what's called disconfirming evidence that show us that oh uh, that's not the case even if i even if i'm not respected because i don't get this project done in the time i thought i would not only will I not get fired, but I won't lose respect. There's plenty of people who care about me. I have plenty of other tools I have, you know, and such and so, so forth. So when we really see the deep fears that underlie maladaptive coping strategies, it becomes easier to address those deep fears. And once the deep fears are addressed, then some of the maladaptive coping strategies begin to fall aside. So my voice is completely becoming shredded and uh, that's pretty much, I think, all I can blather on about. Uh, so in the moment, I think it's time to meditate and time to uh, practice some of these tools in our spiritual practice. So let's now find a really comfortable seated position And for those of you that do have uh, jobs and feel you are capable of donating to support the work of this Buddhist pastor, all of my work is entirely supported by donations, the, both the counseling, the teaching, and so forth. So if you would like to support my work, the... Uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC, and the PayPal button is on the Dharma Punks NYC website. Thanks for that. And now, finding a really comfortable upright position. In my case, taking off the eyeglasses and just um, taking a little time to imagine my attention withdrawing from the world around me and the attention now uh, retreating into the body and instead of looking out I'm now looking in and down uh, <clears throat> when we do our embodied practice it's important to not feel that attention is locked in to just the head which of course given the fact that so many of the sensations we're aware of during the day come from the eyes and ears sight and sound over time we locate awareness as being something that's entirely up in the head is actually not, uh, but it can certainly seem that way because given how much of our uh, incoming stimuli comes from the eyes and ears, we just habitually locate awareness as being up in that region. But actually awareness can, in practice, um, be one, expanded so that we don't feel it's this little tight area 
but actually one sense of awareness, one sense of centeredness, one sense of where consciousness resides can actually expand to the point where it is fully embodied. And how we do that is we become aware of all the felt sensations of that are occurring in the body. And it's also really useful to put aside the habitual tendency to visualize an image of our bodies as we meditate and to simply try to push at first images of ourself or our bodies from consciousness and in and instead just feel the sensations maybe stemming from originally from the toes or the knees or the sit bones or the abdomen or the breath in the abdomen and chest or maybe the sensations of the throat and so forth not labeling them as parts of the body but just sensations much like stars in a night sky <clears throat> we just can experience the body as a milky way or cosmos of sensations and we can in practice begin to bring our awareness very close to sensations that ordinarily we might feel far away from so for example when our eyes are open if there's a pain in our foot it might be experienced as quite um, distant from where consciousness which we might normally locate is being up in our heads but in practice with eyes closed and where we push aside any images of the body and over time we just pay attention to the sensations of heat, coldness, uh, discomfort, comfort, sensations of heat or liquidity, liquidity tightness of muscles or release but not labeling what part of the body the sensations reside from. Over time, we can move around this cosmos of sensations and begin to feel awareness expand. So for this practice at first, what I'd like to offer is just try to imagine that the sensations of your body almost as if they're a galaxy of planets and stars and that consciousness itself is a kind of spaceship that you can uh, move at light speed between different solar systems and planets and you can zip right up close to any sensation in your body and float next to it and really pay attention and really observe the sensation and then once it starts to fade you can move to another sensation maybe way across this internal solar system or galaxy and just keep experiencing the sensations without labeling what part of the body even labeling them as good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant at first just just allow yourself to stay present and embodied so let's just practice for a little while and if you're mind drifts away back to thinking or visualizing places or things that are not here just the practice is just keep bringing your awareness back without any sense of doing anything wrong without any uh, 
any self-criticism at all, and just reward yourself for coming back by giving yourself a nice, comfortable breath and feeling good. In many ways, the practice is all about how we return and keep returning home to the body.
So at this time, we have an opportunity to practice a couple of somatic or body-based tools uh, that uh, exemplify some of the themes from the talk. And so for this practice, just try to bring in your mind's eye, if you can visualize, some people struggle to visualize, but if you can visualize, uh, create an image in your mind of a very stressful situation associated with work or employment or looking for work in, or employment. Something that, uh, and a situation that recurs in your daily life that's very stressful. Could be situations where you're bombarded with incoming obligations, responsibilities, or tasks that we don't feel particularly skilled at. For some of us, budgeting or math or uh, for others, interpersonal interactions, settings where we have to uh, interact with difficult people. Just visualize some regularly occurring events that we struggle with and that often create or trigger um, behaviors that we're not necessarily always happy with. So it might again be an image where we're about to have an interaction with somebody associated with employment that uh, we really don't feel comfortable with, that gives us a hard time, that is emotionally uh, unrewarding. Really put yourself in that situation. Really imagine that you're there. And then what I'd like you to do, the moment you feel you can recreate this um, unrewarding scenario in your mind's eye, is to pull attention away slightly from the visualization and just become aware of what state now is your body in. And I was doing this practice while I was talking and I can feel that my body started to lean forward. Uh, I started to feel my shoulders contract a little. I started to feel my stomach tighten. I started to feel my breath become a little more shallow. And so for this practice, what I'd like us to do is, for me, I would lean back, release my shoulders, rotate them up and down so that they open up the chest. I took a nice breath into my belly and softened my belly. And now I'm in the same visual but my body is in a completely different somatic state. My center of gravity, my body is no longer inclining forward, my shoulders are no longer tight, my belly is no longer taut, and my breath is far less shallow. And once you're in this new slightly different states, see if you can feel an emotional shift towards the situation. See if you can play around with your body so you feel less uh, either overwhelmed or under the gun or less defensive or less vulnerable. Just play around with your body while you hold the image in mind, the triggering image in mind, and see what position gives you a slight sense of, of 
uh, either greater ease or more confidence. And just become aware how the position of the body can change the way we experience and even the inclinations and impulses that occur. Imagine now that you can also pull your awareness away from the triggering stimuli, the triggering visual, and move your attention to something else in the same environment, but that's not triggering. So maybe a plant or a window looking out on a expanse, or maybe just a neutral sensation, uh, a doorway, a wall, a ceiling. Practice pulling your awareness away from the trigger, reorienting to safety cues. Imagine also moving slower in this setting, taking time to breathe. Pausing. Imagine the stimuli coming at you, but not needing to immediately respond, taking it slower. And now let's bring into the same setting either the image of a protective figure, resourcing it's called, resourcing a uh, protective figure. It could be a real person or an angelic being to create an internal secure base. Or imagine yourself in this triggering situation and just repeat in your mind a phrase associated with calm. May all beings be peaceful, happy, free of stress. May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress. Or the simple phrase I like, I love you, keep going. So now I'm going to ring the bowl and just take your time, allowing yourself to very slowly, without any rush, return part of your awareness to the world around you, while also maintaining an internal awareness. The mind is very capable of being aware of both how we feel and what's going on around us. That's in fact what is the very definition of mindfulness. <laughs> 